So people have to understand they are probably mm. eventually going to get this virus one way or the other. It's that first infection that you need to be able to deal with. And you can do that by either getting the virus and surviving it, which is rolling a very small dice, or you can get the vaccine. And the second time you get it, you're probably going to shrug it off. The third time you get it, it's just going to boost your immunity. That was Professor Francois Fenter, a professor of medicine at Fitz University and a leading HIV clinician who has also been at the forefront of the fight against COVID-19. My name is Kale Maestri, business director at Razor PR. I recently hosted a discussion between the professor and Senator Schlanschlein Zama, head product actuary at Investec Life. In this Investec-focused radio podcast, I will share some of the most interesting insights from the discussion, ranging from the impact of COVID-19 variants, the effectiveness, the economics and distribution of the vaccine in South Africa, to issues like long COVID, vaccine passports and vaccine nationalism. Selin Schleschler also talks about how accounting for uncertainty around the pandemic has changed the insurance landscape. To kick off the webcast, I asked Francois if the so-called South African variant that caught the world by surprise could further disrupt our vaccine rollout plans, only to find that calling it that is somewhat of a misnomer. So I think that the, the surprise of the variant is mm. surprising in itself. All the virologists are like, yeah, whatever, we, virus, viruses mutate, that's what they do. Yeah, and they mutate to become more transmissible. Viruses have no interest in killing you. They just want to infect as many people as possible because they need you to replicate. The variant's interesting in the sense that it's what we call the, the most fit type takes over. And that's what happened in South Africa between the first and the second wave, is this variant became much more fit than the old one. And it just took over. I heard over 93% of the cases in Gauteng, for instance, are just the new variant. And the other 7% are various other variants. But we've got a, a Brazilian variant, a UK variant. It's, it's politically... Uh, incorrect to talk about which country they come from because that's not even the country that where they evolved it's just the country where they were picked up there's now a san francisco variant there's a californian there's a new york there's probably a Pufada one and a durban <laughs> one and a, there's probably thousands of variants that are all competing with each other to be the next effective and fit version that's going to take over around so people don't need to be too afraid of this it was predictable and what's good news is it seems as if the people who've had COVID and who've had the vaccines are still pretty resistance against the variants with the data that we've got. It's hard to imagine while we're in the middle of the storm that there will ever come a time when COVID-19 is treated like the flu, a virus we simply coexist with and have contained through regular exposure and annual vaccinations. But this is what Francois believes will happen. It's like a normal cold virus. Every couple of years you're going to get it. And we see this with other, the other four coronaviruses. They just circulate around. Normally what would happen with the coronavirus, you get the age of three when your immune system can pretty much deal with anything. And then you kind of get it every couple of years as a booster. What the problem for us is that that first infection, mm. particularly when you're older, your T cells are not nearly as, as robust, or if you're diabetic, they're not as robust. And that's when it triggers this weird immunological reaction, which makes you so sick. So people have to understand they are probably mm. eventually going to get this virus one way or the other. It's that first infection that you need to be able to deal with. And you can do that by either getting the virus and surviving it, which is rolling a very small dice, or you can get the vaccine and the second time you get it, you're probably going to shrug it off. The third time you get it, it's just going to boost your immunity. Fortunately, the events at the start of 2021 have given scientists enough data to start scenario planning. Francois believes there are three potential ways that this virus could play out in the future. And we're holding thumbs that it's not number three. So that best case scenario is that we all 
get the vaccine or we get the virus. Um, so the anti-vaxxers will eventually get infected and they'll mm. get sick and they'll die or they'll live through it and they'll be immune after that. And then every subsequent wave will re, um, re-immunize you, essentially. The second scenario is that, that, and this is where we don't know, is that immunity wanes, wanes away and the virus manages to mutate. And that's like flu. You, know, you need to get a booster every year and the, the flu immunity wanes over three to five years. So that's a, not a great scenario because that mm. means every five years we're going to have to get a new, a, new, um, a new vaccine. What I call the Armageddon scenario is the one where we have to get a vaccine every year where the variants manage to get passed and it makes you sick again and again. And that is a terrible scenario because one, it means the whole society is going to have to contort itself around the annual vaccination. And old people and diabetics are are going to live in continual fear of getting Mm. that infection and we will not be getting rid of the masks. The first one, we'll probably have the mask on, we'll be back to normal within a year or two. The second one is going to take a huge amount of resources and is going to need the society. The third one is, is almost unfathomable. Luckily, the virology and the immunology suggest that the first one is the one we're looking at at the moment. So thankfully, there's a strong chance that we dodge the Armageddon scenario. But what happens to people who've been vaccinated when they're infected by new mutations of the virus? So we haven't had a single death or a single hospitalization yet in the people who've been vaccinated in the clinical trials with the variants or the first wave variants. Mm. So every passing day, we become more confident that the the vaccines are going to be able to stand up to the variants. Of all the medical jargon that has become part of our daily vocabulary, none has captured our imagination more than the term herd immunity. Some scientific models say that up to 60% of the population has to be vaccinated in order to reach this holy grail of virology. Francois believes it's an unattainable goal. There will be no herd immunity. There will be just a circulating virus going round and round, which we'll all get every couple of months. Early on, people were talking about eradication. So you've got the kind of New Zealand, but for the whole kind of the whole world, where you just keep the virus out and you know the virus dies off because there's no one to infect, because no one comes close enough. Now that seems almost impossible now to envisage. So what we rather talk about individual immunity mm. so that you don't get sick. And that the person is immune from illness, not from the virus. Vaccines work in different ways. They, you know, you can get a vaccine and the hoho you're trying to stop like bounces off the back of your throat and doesn't even manage to get into a cell. But in most cases, the thing actually does infect you, but your immune system is like, oh my goodness, you had a couple of cells and it goes and clears it out. And that's what happened with flu. Often you'll get flu, but it'll just be a much milder thing. You'll have a sore throat. You won't be in bed for five days. And this is what we think is going to happen with the vaccines as well. Is it's not going to give you sterilizing immunity. It's not going to like protect you absolutely from infection, but it's going to stop you of all the horrible things that can happen. So what will happen is you'll probably end up with a scratchy throat at worst, and often you won't even notice, but you still will have been infected. That's not herd immunity. We heard in the budget speech that National Treasury has set aside 10.3 billion rand for vaccines for the next three years, with another 9 billion rand available in an emergency fund. The Solidarity Fund plans to spend 500 million rand to boost our vaccine rollout program. I asked Sinan Schlanschla if he thinks this is enough. I think it's more than just the cost. I think as a country, we have to look at the capacity and the scale of the operations. Because if you think about our country with nine provinces, urban, rural, and just a vast um, geographic spread that needs to have. So how do you keep this uh, vaccine rolling for throughout the year to get to uh, 20 million or 40 million uh, vaccinations? If you look at 20 million throughout uh, the year, you're looking at 400,000 per week. 
how do you reach that? You think about also just the demographic profiles. We are wanting to reach in the phase two, uh, if I understand, the, the, the elderly and those with uh, pre-existing conditions. And they will be spread all over the country. So you need to reach Pulukwane and Musina. You need to reach deep down the Eastern Cape. So government will have to be able to create that capacity with the support from the uh, private sector. Francois agrees that when it comes to the vaccination rollout in South Africa, it's really all about capacity. You know, if we vaccinate 5,000 kids a, a day in this country, we're going to have to get to 400,000 adults a, a week is a massive ramping up. You cannot do this in the public or even in the private sector in existing things. The second new term to go viral in our lexicon has got to be the third wave, with scientists predicting it will hit South Africa this winter, given the slow pace of the vaccine rollout the potential for new variants to emerge, holiday travel and super-spreader events. Francois doesn't, however, buy into the fear-mongering around the third wave. If I had to guess, and as I said, all bets are off mm. this, I think so many people were infected in the first and second wave, I think the third wave actually might be quite blunted. I think we are going to see several waves um, until everyone's had the virus at least once. Um, and with, but the second wave was so severe, you know, compared to the first wave. I think part of the reason for that is that the first wave, the, the lockdown was so severe that many people were able to retreat behind closed doors. The second wave, the increased transmissibility of the variant and the fact that most of us were back at work and we were back, mm. you know, kids were back at school and stuff like that meant that, that things were a lot worse. I keep saying to my family and friends is that the third wave, you're going to need to survive that because it's unlikely you're going to get vaccinated before that. The thinking at the moment is it'll probably be in June, July. While the changing biology of the virus is throwing curveballs at scientists, the human devastation left in its wake is also incalculable. One sector that's been hard hit is the insurance industry, whose financial results tell a story of lost loved ones, lost jobs and closed businesses. Here's an Schlanschler on how the pandemic has changed the insurance world. It has actually changed. The, the industry, the whole, and all the sectors within the industry, starting from the um, short-term insurance with the lockdowns and impacts on businesses. So we saw claims shooting up and surging for business interruption covers and, and unemployment uh, actually start, start kicking in, or even if it was temporary, but we see the claims and the impacts coming through. Going to health insurance and life insurance, which is where we specialize. Here in South Africa, we are seeing the claims going up for both insurers and their reinsurers. We're also seeing uh, an increase in claims for things like income protection, most specifically for medical uh, professionals in, who are fighting the virus. So even if they don't, they don't display severe symptoms, they have to be in isolation for about 10 to 14 days in that interim, then they claim on their income protection type of products. So even the insurance industry, which uses sophisticated modeling for future scenarios, was caught off guard by COVID-19. I asked Francois whether we can expect another global pandemic in our lifetime. Since I was a baby medical student, we've been told this is coming. We always thought it would be a flu um, mutation. The, the reality of it is we've had waves which we've shrugged off. So the first SARS, MRSA, there have been a couple of these Ebola we've seen flaring at the moment in Central Africa. All these viruses are sitting there waiting, and not just viruses, some of the bacteria as well, um, waiting to come out. And it, it might be next year. It might be in, not in our lifetime. I think this is a, a terrible, terrible, destructive dry run for something that we actually need to be preparing for in the future. 
and maybe it won't be a respiratory virus. We now know that surface transmission of this virus is, if it happens at all, is very, very unusual. It's all respiratory. Imagine if it was surfaces. Imagine if it didn't die in 24 hours like we know it does. Those kind of scary zombie movies that we all watched as children, you know, are, might become a reality. That's a scary prospect indeed, especially for the insurance industry. So how do insurers plan for future scenarios of this magnitude? Well, I guess, I guess as insurers, one of the things uh, that, that you insure if you've got is enough capital, and both in South Africa and globally, these, they are well capitalized, most of the insurers. So insurers even plan for scenario planning for things like pandemics and short-term insurance, things like earthquakes and other natural disasters. But what is going to be key now and crucial is, is this going to be more often? Because if it's more often, then you might not run out of capital now, but in the future, in the next uh, five years, how do you uh, sufficiently provision for those if they're going to be much more frequent? So that for, for, for us as, in, as the insurance industry is what we're going to really be working on, let alone then understanding the data coming from the medical fraternity about the long-term effects of the current COVID. It's still very unclear what the effects of long COVID will be. Francois spoke to us about some scary data that's coming out on this condition. So firstly, people with diabetes and older people, people with T-cell problems, although their immunity isn't quite as robust, they're the ones who seem to get hammered by COVID. They're the ones more likely to get hospitalized, they're more likely to die. They're also more likely to get long COVID, which is this constellation of weird long-term symptoms. And it's quite common. I, I, the healthcare practitioners I know have had it, everything from minor irritations to what they call the brain fog, just difficulty just thinking, but also body pain, headaches, just there's quite a lot of neuropsychiatric stuff associated. And that's quite scary data on heart conditions where they've done exercise studies on people who after COVID and demonstrated that the abnormalities in how the heart you know, sort of re-electrifies itself. And that may make you more prone to arrhythmias. It's not like HIV where you can take a blood test and say you've got HIV. The antibodies wane, and at this stage, I can pitch up and say I've got long COVID, and you have no objective way of saying I've ever had COVID. The race for the vaccine has certainly exposed inequality in the world. I asked Francois for his thoughts around this. I think what you've seen with is vaccine nationalism, um, and you've seen these rich countries buy up several times more than they, even if they need to vaccinate their population, sometimes 10 times over to, to use them all up. So I think they've tried to grab what they can, and again, I'm I think is depressingly predictable, to be quite honest. I think the one certain amount of schadenfreude that we can take from this is that, you know, in HIV, we always used to say, if you're not infected, you're affected. Now, that actually wasn't totally true for big chunks of the population. They actually weren't infected or affected. With this virus, like it gets rich, it gets the poor. And even in South Africa, watching some of our politicians saying, we're not going to vaccinate foreigners. Well, how do you think this virus is spread? So I think the virus itself is going to demand better treatment of the poor, of, you know, that we don't see the disparities that we saw playing out in the early parts of the epidemic. Vaccine nationalism could mean that you cannot travel to certain countries if you don't have the vaccination. It's being called a green passport. Will these become a reality in the near future? So I think vaccine passports are going to be maybe a temporary thing. I, I think they're very likely to happen. It's interesting. I, I mean, many of you have traveled to Africa, have had yellow fever vaccination cards. You know, we can't, you can't travel there unless you get a vaccination. If you want to go to medical school in South Africa, you have to get a hepatitis B vaccine. It's compulsory. There's no debate about it. I think for international travel, it's very likely that countries are going to demand that you have proof of vaccination. Whether that's a long-term thing, as I said, there is a reality in the future, which is this is just a circulating virus that goes round and round and round, and that people start relaxing and saying, well, nobody's getting sick anymore, and, that, and we relax that. So then if we extend that into the life insurance sector, is there ever going to be a case where a COVID vaccine is going to be required 
or you don't get insurance? It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's still uncertain. And I mean, that's one, one thing with insurance is that we deal very well with risk where you know the, the, the possible outcomes and the probabilities of those outcomes. Here, we know the possible outcomes, but we don't know the probabilities. That's why it's uncertain. So we know that it, if you're not vaccinated uh, in the future, you could, you could be in trouble or you might actually not be in trouble because there will be a population immunity. But the question is, for us as an, uh, as an insurer to consider, will there be any substantial risk differential between those who are vaccinated and those who are not with, with this same coronavirus or with a future variant? So if we can quantify it then, then yes, if if you're not vaccinated, it may mean that you may have some loadings in your premiums, which I guess is a, is a universal principle that we use in, in, in risk underwriting for insurance purposes for any other condition. On the topic of COVID anti-vaxxers, is it true that we don't know enough about the long-term effects of these vaccines to really trust them? Are messenger RNA vaccines safe? Some of these vaccines and the technologies have been developed over decades. So they just tweaked it a little bit to, be, to focus on the coronavirus. So when people say they're safe, they are absurdly safe relative to you putting a, you know, a painkiller that you bought over the counter at the, the, at the, you know, at the local petrol station in your mouth. This, this idea that they, they've been rushed to market is actually wrong. Tens of millions of people have just been vaccinated around the world like in rich countries with, with lots of lawyers. You know, and nothing has seems to be have cropped up yet. And everyone is watching for this. What I can tell you is that this virus is so nasty that when you're weighing up getting COVID versus a tiny chance that maybe there's a safety signal that we don't know about that might be picked up, that is an easy thing for me to, to weigh up. So vaccines are safe, but are all vaccines created equal? To my mind, they, they are all equal. Some you have to give twice. That's about the biggest difference. In terms of efficacy, they're all in the high 90s. The variants seem to be able to get past some of them with greater ease than others. But that, as I said, it's an infection. They keep you out of hospital. They keep you from dying. They're almost certainly going to keep you from long COVID. That's all I really care about. This leads us to the question of self-medication. From ivermectin to hydrochloroquine. People have been taking matters into their own hands. A dangerous thing to do. We don't have anything to prevent the virus at this stage other than physical distancing and masks. We've got some drugs that look kind of promising. We're actually studying some of them um, here in Johannesburg that might prevent you getting it. The ivermectin is being thrown around. We actually evaluated ivermectin early last year to see it, but the, the doses needed to stop you getting an infection just seem to be so high that they'd be very, very dangerous. Um, we've seen the rise of hydroxychloroquine. We've seen vitamin D. All these things, when they actually get assessed, haven't actually worked. So Doing these kind of home remedies and things, people just need to have a bit of common sense, you know. I'd much rather wear a mask and do physical distancing and wait for the vaccine before starting to put tablets in my mouth that my cousin told me work. Francois has been at the forefront of HIV AIDS research in South Africa. I asked him if there are any lessons we can learn from this work. I must say, often coronavirus feels like HIV fast-tracked, like it's fast-forwarded almost. And I think that the first thing is community buy-in. Mm. You know, we had people talking about vaccine hesitancy. We had ARV hesitancy. We had people who just would rather die than swallow the tablets. And I think, again, the way to deal with that is by patient education. You know, we could force everyone into a room and give them the jab, but that has been shown you know, throughout the world to actually breed vaccine hesitancy. And already there's distrust of government, you know, and I think the lessons learned was also public health trust. It's hard won and it's easily lost. For 
the fast tracking and the ethics we were talking about and access to medication and access to vaccines, as well as for the COVID meds, I think that you require civil society, you need strong focus and, and the BDI on the, the pharmaceutical companies that are doing this. We need them. They are incredibly important partners. If we left this up to government, we'd still be giving people masks and a peck on both cheeks, you know, over Zoom, rather than actually giving them vaccines. But they are they're commercial beasts and we need to keep an eye on them. And I think finally, the, the, the lesson from HIV is that health is actually a moral imperative. I think too often over the last 20 or 30 years, it's been kind of the economy is the most important thing. I think we've seen now the economy is actually at the mercy of populations being healthy. Fortunately, COVID-19 is different to the HIV virus when it comes to its mutagenic properties. So the thing about HIV is that it's so mutagenic. Personally, person who has an ARVs gets about between 1 and 10 billion viruses in their body every single day. And on average, there's one mutation in every single one of those viruses. Coronavirus is much, much more stable than that. But it is an interesting distinction. Coronavirus, we don't use drugs at all. We don't have anything ready to offer anyone to prevent or treat the early part of it. We could stuff for people in the hospital. But we have an amazing vaccine. With HIV, we have no vaccine, but we have amazing drugs. We've all missed being able to hug and gather with our loved ones and the camaraderie of chatting to work colleagues in the office. I asked Francois when he thinks things will return to normal, if they ever will. If the scenario I've talked about, a circulating virus where everyone gets it, at least you, know, you have to survive the first one or get a vaccine, I think our society will be back to normal. I really do. I think there'll be some fundamental changes which are going to be related to your business and the, you know, how businesses are structured and how airline travel and all of that stuff happens. But honestly, if that happens, we'll be back to normal. There won't be masks in a couple of years' time. You know, we will be able to hug our loved ones without fear. The Armageddon scenario I was describing, though, where the immunity wanes very quickly and we have to get vaccine after vaccine is absolutely terrifying because it means no old person can ever come out safe again. And that, as I said, the immunology and the virology suggests that's not likely to happen. But that is, a, it's almost unbearable to contemplate. If you're looking for silver linings from the crisis, you might say that it's taught us how to be resilient and adaptable. Fnachlanchla believes it's given us a better understanding of how to deal with uncertainty. I think one element that we will appreciate uh, after this virus is that understanding of how to live in an uncertain world. Because I think before this, come uh, uh, last year, January, when the, the, the virus was still dominantly in Asia, no one could have actually thought that governments, our own government included, could go into this extent on, on locking down the entire country. But I think for me, the valuable lessons is how to respond, how to live in an uncertain world and on where there will be a need for, for collaboration between governments, uh, businesses, individuals. Because here, individuals also play a big, big, big role. You can't police 60 million people and ensure that they all observe the, the curfew. But I think individuals and understanding how to live in that uncertain world is, is actually a valuable lesson from this virus. Thank you for listening. If you value the insights you heard during this discussion, please take the time to rate this podcast and subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.